reading the first four voices, verses. We're reading this morning of imitating Christ's humility. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my job, my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of others. This is the word of our Lord. Like the, uh, the beginning of that uh, verse that's just been read, also in the message version, it says, if you've gotten anything out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, being in a community of spirit means that you can heart if you care, then do the unfold. With each other, love each other, Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to give a helping hand. Well, unity we're talking about. And of course, there are many, many examples of unity in the Bible. I can think immediately that there's a unity in the Bible itself because the same Holy Spirit inspired the people to write it. I can think of marriage which talks about two people being joined together so that they may be one. In Matthew 19, 6 it says, so they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. And in Psalm 133, it says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. For there, for there, the Lord proclaims and bestows his blessing, life forevermore. So it's something to want to have, isn't it, in our lives as we read the Bible and as we come together as a, a group of God's people. I can also think from the Bible of some negative uh, examples of unity or examples where unity happened on the wrong basis. Um, the obvious one in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And they said, come, let us come together with bricks and mortar and bake them thoroughly and we'll build this magnificent city. And they said, uh, they'll do that, a tower that reaches up to heaven so that we will make a name for ourselves. And of course, the motivation wasn't very good, was it? Ourselves. That's exactly the opposite of what we read earlier, the advice from the Bible. But the Lord said, if they speak as, uh, the same language and they have begun this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. 
When people come together for evil purposes, there is a unity, but it's a unity that God is opposed to. And more than that, it's a unity that God eventually will destroy. He will confuse those who are involved in it, just as he did then. And then I also think of John 17. There's a unity between God and believers. In John 17, 20, 21, Jesus said, My prayer is not only for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. Somebody else passed the message to us. And now we believe. And according to this, we are united with God through Jesus Christ and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may know that you have sent me. I can think of military applications of unity and, uh, and quite a few of you will have served in the army or other, other forces. And you know, uh, if anyone in your family has served, that unity is important. You know, at Gallipoli, we talk sometimes about the divergent views that the Australians and the British had. And there were problems because of that, weren't there? And we can think of many other battles as well, where, where there were different points of view about what should happen. There was disunity. And so it undermines. And I'm reminded of church life as well, which in Ephesians 4 says this, and it's talking about unity and maturity in the body of Christ. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the All right, the wonderful power of unity. Paul begins his letter to the Philippians by thanking them for their support. You see, there's a kind of unity between them. He's in prison, or at least under arrest, and the good news he is proclaiming has caused this. In Philippians 1.27 to 2.11, Paul turns to one of his main themes in the letter, of course, and that is unity. Coupled with this, he stresses the need for humility. And Paul repeats the call. Thank you. Hello, can you hear me? Hey. Apologies, everyone. We're having a few little technical issues this morning. I'll do just this. <laughs> How does that look? This is next year's fashion. <laughs> okay, so Paul has probably heard of the conflict and division from Epaphroditus, who came to the Philippian church to deliver a financial gift. And it appears that problems outside the church have affected 
inside the church. When we are challenged by different political decisions or different cultural challenges from outside, which we are, aren't we? We need to remember that we have been built together by God himself. We can express different viewpoints, but we must always remember the essential unity that God has placed us together. Going back to the Philippians, Roman citizenship was very important. And Paul reminds the church that they are citizens of Christ by virtue of the gospel. Their Christian citizenship is secured in heaven, he says in 3.20. And so Paul calls on believers to live lives worthy of the gospel. Now, you know, Christians at that time were going through a pretty hard time. We talk sometimes today about persecution of Christians in Western society. Um, people outside of Western society and the world are going through a lot more. And believers at that time were faced with the possibility of crucifixion, beheading, being burnt alive. But Paul reminds them in this theme of unity that there is a bigger story at work, one which will lead them to ultimate success. Commentator Paul Barnett says, Philippian society, as an outpost of Rome, would have been hard-nosed and fiercely competitive. The wealthy did favours for the social stratum below them, and they demanded favours in return. So it wasn't very well motivated, was it? <laughs> it was all about me. How can I advance myself? The wealthy did favours, as I say, and the lower strata, they gave and demanded favours also from those below them. Does this remind you of some of these British movies where there's three classes? You know, there's the upper echelon and there's the middle class and there's the guy stoking the coal in the, <laughs> in the, bottom, in the bottom of the whole machine. And you see, in Philippian society, they had social clubs, they were drinking clubs, they were known as symposia that doubtlessly gave a degree of camaraderie. However, it was superficial. It was marked by drunkenness and it was often involving uh, um, sexual intercourse between men and boys and other things as well. So there were competing values in the Philippian church. So the Philippians were looking for a model of how to live in unity as Christians. Which one were they going to follow? Were they going to follow the society around them or were they going to follow something else? Were they going to follow Paul's advice? Which one would they choose? And as I say that, I ask the question, which one would we choose? Because we're facing competing values as well, aren't we? Now, the key virtues in Roman society were courage and moderation and prudence and justice. One would never know it by the way they behaved. <laughs> However, these, these qualities were elitist. They applied only to the upper class, and they were selfish, and they were self-congratulatory. And Paul's alternative values were radically different. Trust, faith in God, hope directed to his kingdom, love, other-centeredness. Paul gives the Philippian church an even stronger reason to pursue unity than just simply being better people. 
he says that they should pursue unity in humility because that actually reflects Jesus Christ. And if they are followers of Jesus Christ, then they ought to look like their saviour. That's why they were called Christians initially, because they were Christ-like ones. And so that falls again on us, doesn't it? You know, not only do we have to make a choice between society around us and some other choice of ethic or moral or way of living our lives, but we need to do it with an awareness that we are Christians. And if we are Christians, then we should be Christ-like ones. Let's have a look at three things. The motivation for having a unity, the nature of that unity, and the attitudes required for unity. The motivation for having unity that produces this joy that Paul talks about. He says, do we not have any con consolation in Christ? He says, if there is any consolation. He's not doubting that there is. He's using this if then. If one thing is true, then something else is true. You know, there is a consolation from being with Christ. For example, in Galatians 3.29, he says, if you are Christ's, then the if does not suggest doubt that they could be Christ's. Because the previous verse, he said they were. Rather, there is much consolation to be found in Christ Jesus. There was then, and there is now. He says, do we not have any comfort of love? Do we not enjoy any comfort that comes from love? Does not the love that comes from God, the Holy Spirit, and Christ himself, and even our fellow believers, provide comfort? Compare 2 Corinthians 1. 3 to 5. And once again, it does. And he asks, do we not have any fellowship of the Spirit? Well, all have been baptized into Christ, have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38, 39, and Acts 5, 32. Not only by the Spirit have we been baptized into this one body, this body that is Christ's body, this church that is here, but we've been all made to drink of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And finally, do we not have any affection or mercy? You see, there's an affection that comes from Jesus to us. And we hear about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and we think, boy, that's removed from us, isn't it? That seems a long way away. But we're told that Jesus Christ He's talking to his father for us. And he's saying, these people are mine. And he's asking his father to bless us, to have mercy. So what's the nature of unity that we need? Well, we're told in, in this uh, particular... Excuse me, excuse me while I readjust. <laughs> it's an interesting day. Uh, we're told that it involves like-mindedness, which means to think the same thing. It's the same quality of unity that Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians 1, 10. It involves having the same love. 
It involves being of one accord, literally having one soul. I wonder, did the church at Philippi have one soul? There seems to be a, have been a good degree of unity, even though there was a problem there. And once again, thinking of ourselves, do we have one soul? It involves being of one mind, which means being intent on the same purpose. Okay, so what are the attitudes that we require for this unity that Paul asks the Philippians to have and that we should have too? Well, he says, um, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. These are some attitudes that we should not have. Um, being self-centered. Wanting to advance at the expense of others. We should not exalt ourselves in selfish ambition or be conceited. And in place of these, we should have these qualities. This is what is suggested. Lowliness of mind. Lowliness is a very old word, isn't it? I remember songs that talked about being lowly and how lowly Christ was um, at the time of his childhood and birth. He put aside the rights that he had in order to go on his mission. Another one is, let us esteem each other better than himself. When we look into our own hearts with our faults, we cannot then look into the hearts of others with criticism. You see, the problem is quite often that we don't want to look into our own hearts. We might even be afraid of looking into our own hearts because we know the sin there. But what the answer is, is to look into that and say, you know what, God, I surrender it all to you because of the freedom that you give me. And when we've done that, we don't have to worry about ourselves. And then we're in a position where we can minister to other people's needs, where we're not competing, where it's not a case of it's either you or me, but we can both raise each other. We can both do things that are important in the economy of God. We both have giftings. We both have giftings perhaps that are different. And so we don't need to compete. I can be the best me and you can be the best you. We don't have to tear each other apart. We don't have to stand on anyone. So it says, look out for the interests of others. And the attitude there is to eliminate selfish ambition. It's an attitude of maturity. And it was the attitude of Christ in Romans 15, 1 to 3. Now, Paul didn't ask the Philippians to do anything that was outside of their capabilities. And as we look at what he said to them and take that upon ourselves, we need to realize that Although these are noble things that he calls the church to, they're not beyond us either. Because we have the same Jesus in heaven, asking his Father for us. We have the same spirit that was given to Paul. We have the same spirit that was given to the Philippian church. We have the same spirit. Finally, I want to go on to 
talk about fellowship. Because the idea of fellowship is very, very intimately connected with unity. So often we talk about fellowship as though it's a cup of tea. And if, if we're lucky, a potluck. But you see, fellowship is so much more than that. It comes from a word called, uh, which is a koinonia, koinonia, or koinonia, depending on which way you come from. It's a bit like the Adelaide and the, the South Australian and the New South Wales pronunciations. <laughs> Let's say koinonia. And Paul's letter to the Philippians concentrates on relationships, doesn't it? He talks at the very beginning of, very warmly about them and how much he loves them and how much he knows them and how much he desires great things for them. And he doesn't want anything to stand in the way of the connection he has with them and they have with him or more to the point, the connection that they have with God. And basically he's saying to them that these things are connected. You can't have a relationship with God and treat people badly. And you can't, um, you know, ha have a Christian relationship with other people and disregard the connection that that has with God. They're connected. And he says that as the Father and the Son are in a healthy, loving relationship, and as Paul and the church and Philippi have a relationship, so we are to have a similar commitment both to God and to one another. A koinonia is a very profound relationship. It's often misunderstood. It's often undervalued these days. It, it was a word that was sometimes used for business partnerships. You know, it's something that involves a contract. It's, it's deep. Now, if things go well, we all do well. And if things go south, we all have trouble. <laughs> if a business fails, everybody suffers because they were invested in it. They are bound to one another. Or to give you a, a more startling illustration, in those days as today, we had uh, Siamese twins, children that were born that were connected in the flesh. And if they were born side by side, they often had the same bloodstream. And that was one of the difficulties which we still have in separating these children. They share not only some organs, but also the bloodstream. And when they were born in the ancient world, they were said to have a koinonia in the blood. Literally a fellowship in the blood. That's how close they were. So if, if you think a little, a little bit back where I talked about a business partnership, that's, that's demanding enough, isn't it? You know, you've invested your money, you had great plans, something happened, and we all suffered as a result. But how much more intimate and how much more dramatic is this? Like two children that are actually born joined together, conjoined twins. And there's difficulty separating. And, and uh, 
What it means is, and one of the dangers is, if one dies, there is a very high risk that the other will as well. And some of you know that from, from uh, medical backgrounds. They're so caught up in one another. And Paul keeps on talking about our koinonia. What happens to you happens to me, and vice versa. It's a very strong image. Paul had been the church's parent, in inverted commas, hadn't he? He had come and he had started the church and he had nurtured the church. He had discipled the people who were there and he had established leaders. And the church had grown both in size and strength and maturity. But now he has reached a stage where he calls them my partner. How lovely is that? Um, have you experienced that with people who go on mission? Uh, I have. You know, where somebody was teaching, and sometimes I was, sometimes they were, and they decided to go on a mission to northwest China or somewhere like that, or Afghanistan. And there's a bond between us. What a strong bond there is between us. But you see, that's not just reserved for the church and missionaries. It's for us, all of us as well. So Paul had been their parent, but now he calls them my partner. Wrapping up what we've said, the world tells us that unity is a good thing. You've seen the ads, haven't you? You've seen the, the stickers on the car, the stickers which say, you know, wouldn't it be great if all religions just got along with each other? <laughs> uh, you know, the ads that say, you know, we should... Um, get along with all these other countries, but you know, we'll do it on the lowest common denominator, and that's frequently what the world suggests. It's a different kind of unity from the koinonia, the close binding together, the love that Paul has described. The unity the world suggests is a reductionist type. It's something to do with lowest common denominator. It nearly always involves compromise, it's anything goes, you know, anything goes. We're all together because we're disunited. <laughs> anything goes. Uh, when it comes to morals and ethics, we're told that we should not say that there is a God's way, a different way, a distinct way, a way that is actually better than other choices. When it comes to religion, we are told that all roads are equally effective and acceptable. I've heard that many times, have you? Many, many times. And it's all, almost become a situation in our nation where these things are the mantra. They're actually the, the driving sayings of our culture. You know, anything goes. Uh, let's reduce it to the no, lowest common denominator. Let's compromise. You throw away the important things in your faith and we'll throw away this and, and then we'll be all together and everything will be nice. Except that we've chucked everything out overboard. But Philippians shows us a different type of unity. We should be seeking to stand in contrast. I don't mean constantly being in confrontation with the people around us or the society around us. But we should be seeking to stand in contrast because... 
we have a God who is holy, and we are called to be holy. And there is a difference. And we don't want to crush anyone by that, but rather we want to invite them into the good things that God is giving us. Our unity is not just a good idea. It's a visible expression of community, of koinonia, that's quite different from what's being promoted around us. And more than that, I wonder if you've thought this, more than that, when we live in the kind of koinonia, the kind of community, the kind of loving network that Paul desires, that God desires, that the Philippians were called to, and that we are called to, we're actually a living demonstration that Jesus Christ is alive, is resurrected. Otherwise, it couldn't happen. You know? We have received a great gift. Let's share that great gift among ourselves, together as a community of faith, with other churches, and more broadly as well. Let's live out a godly unity that powerfully demonstrates the nature of God. That's what Paul was calling the Philippians to do. It was within their reach. And despite some challenges, it's within our reach as well. Amen? Amen. Okay, thank you.